In his poem, Mental Cases, Wilfred Owen, whose birthday is today, depicted the men whose minds the dead have ravished, and in strange meeting, pointed to the psychological suffering engendered by war. Four heads of men have bled where no wounds were. The literature of 1914 to 18 is one of the key means by which the Great War has been absorbed into cultural memory, much to the dismay, as we know, of historians, some historians. And the war's psychological impact has become central to the way it is perceived. While during the Great War, what became popular refer popularly referred to as shell shock or neurasthenia was stigmatized. Indeed, it was argued that Owen returned to the front after his time at Craig Lockhart, a hospital for shell-shocked officers, in part to prove his sanity and courage. In the late 20th and early 21st century, the shell-shocked soldier who embodies the psychological trauma of that war has been accorded the status of victim hero. We can see this in the Shot at Dawn campaign, for instance. Post-war, both historians and writers have sought to document and understand the psychological trauma wrought on soldiers, as well as the strategies they employed to maintain emotional well-being. The latter, an important move towards foregrounding resilience and survival as an alternative response to traumatic breakdown. Yet these analyses focus on the combatant experience. There is a marked lack of discussion of the response to the extreme emotional stress borne by those who treat the casualties of war, medical personnel. This is in spite of um, remarks, um, um, assertion in All Quiet on the Western Front of 1929, that a hospital alone shows what war is. The American doctor Harvey Cushing prefaced his First World War journal with the words of an earlier wound dresser, Walt Whitman, to claim the hospital as the place that reveals the essence of war. The marrow of the tragedy is concentrated in the hospitals, from where the title of the talk, this talk is taken. And it's interesting that this Guardian article recently, um, or it's been recently discovered, another of the letters that Whitman, um, as a sort of wound dresser and hospital volunteer, wrote um, for a dying man, for a dying soldier in the hospital. So in this lecture, I want to examine healers' responses to their service, to their own service, that put them in the front lines of caring for wounded and the dying during the First World War. And as Ashley said, this is part of a larger project I undertook with my friend and research colleague, Dr. Carol Acton, that looks into the personal narratives of medical personnel across wars in the 20th and 21st centuries. And our approach to this, I think, really kind of mirrors the great discussion we had last night about the interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach to the Great War, um, and which we can pick up in questions if you want. These accounts, these stories, are at times fragmented, ambiguous, and contradictory, and defined as much by what is left unsaid as said. And in the case of the narratives from the First World War, some of which I will highlight here, arguably constitute the first body of writing to document and legitimize an experience of war that remains largely unacknowledged. That is, how medical personnel perceived and negotiated the physical and psychological spaces in which they worked and in the stories that they told. They produced a range of responses from the heightened language of sacrifice and duty and the desire to endure 
to utter despair at the apparent futility of war as it is manifest in the thousands of dead and wounded that pass through aid post, casualty clearing stations, ambulance trains, ambulances, and hospitals. Drawing on the subjective experience as it is represented in letters, diaries, and memoirs offers a way of understanding the nuances and contradictions involved in a highly complex response to extreme psychological strain, as well as highlighting the extent to which medical personnel bear a huge burden of the psychological cost of war. Yet while their experience is undeniably traumatic, their writings do not invite a reading through theories of trauma that see such experience as defined by breakdown in meaning or a lack of coherent narrative. In spite of silences and fragmentation, the life writings or stories of these doctors, nurses, and ambulance drivers demonstrate a determination to make meaning out of their experiences and, alongside the possibility of breakdown, indicate remarkable resilience and the ability to endure, challenging any attempt to understand this experience in terms of an either-or narrative. Medical personnel have, perhaps, been unwilling to write their own suffering in a world where that of the combatant is perceived to be so much the greater. Their, narrative focus, they, their narratives focus more on the suffering they see and attempt to mitigate than they do on the psychological burden they themselves carry. In place of the writer's suffering, it is common for First World War medical life writings, especially those published during the war years, to exalt and foreground the courage of Tommy Atkins, that is, the enlisted or conscripted soldier, and officer alike. Their writing presupposes that the, combatant, the wounded combatant is the reason for their existence at the front, and thus it is he who is central to the narrative. Disembedding medical practitioners' wartime representations of trauma from these texts can thus be problematic. Describing her work on an ambulance train, that's one for Jeremy, in a series of diary and entry letters um, published in 1915, Nurse Kay LeWard, for instance, veers the narrative away from her own emotion to the outstanding, shining thing which was the universal silent pluck of the men. Such a form of witness seems to want to atone for an inability to save so many of the wounded and sick as they pay tribute to them. As medical officer Jeffrey Keynes would later admit, doing our best was often distressingly inadequate. In addition to foregrounding the wounded soldier and obscuring their own pain, accounts by men and women who cared for them were subject to gendered constructions of their roles heightened in wartime that necessarily have bearing on how they perceive those roles and thus how they write their stories. Male doctors, who might otherwise have been combatants, needed to maintain an appropriately masculine endurance, um, issues that uh, Jessica picks up on her studies of masculinity, particularly in the face of the stoicism that, that, of the men that they tended. Women, on the other hand, needed to prove themselves in a male-dominated world to which they had been grudgingly admitted. And in keeping with the idealized image of the nurse, as you see in these illustrations, from images to novels, posters, etc. For some individuals, the work itself was a continual reminder of the great burden carried by the patient. In a diary without dates, Enid Bagnall describes the sense of shame she carries in the face of her patient's physical pain. 
To stand up straight on one's feet, strong, easy, without the surging of any physical sensation, by a bedside whose covers are flung here and there by the quivering nerves beneath it, there is a sort of shame in such strength. The experience thus reinforced the unwillingness of the, of the nurse to admit, even to herself, to a response that was other than stoic, such that many nursing accounts refer to psychological breakdown of nurses only obliquely. It is therefore unusual to find women, like the American senior nurse Julia Stimson, openly acknowledging a breaking point, not only for her staff, but for herself. Writing home from a French hospital in 1917, she connects with what she has seen with the psychological distress she and her nurses attempt to hold at bay. These frightful sights would work havoc with one's brain. What will we think when we get through it all? How are we going to stand the mental strain? Stimson's concern is unusually prescient in recognizing that the full psychological weight of the experience may well emerge only after in the aftermath of war. Returning in the late 1920s to her experiences as a VAD nurse, Vera Britton employs sight as a metaphor to draw attention to the tensions between psychological necessity of dissociation in the immediate term and the post-trauma inability to shut out the intrusive memories of the wounded and the dead, a feature of traumatic witness. Most of us possessed a kind of psychological shudder, which we firmly closed down upon our recollection of the daily agony, whether there was time, whenever there was time to think. We never dreamed that in the years of renewed sensitiveness after the war, the convenient shudder would simply refuse to operate. Similarly, Leslie Smith asserted, it's not just that I've lost my nerve at the moment, I've lost it permanently. I am not frightened about today or tomorrow. I am frightened to turn every corner, mentally and physically. I am afraid to go through a door or to open a letter or to waken in the morning. I am afraid that if I open the door, I shall find a maniac crawling along the floor. If I think, I shall remember a dying man falling out of bed. I used to think that unreason and mania and crawling fear were outside of real life and had no relation to it. There is only a thin crust of make-belief between sanity and madness, between ease of mind and uncontrolled horror. Paying attention to what can be said or not said and the language used is thus important in considering the way these texts represent trauma and breakdown. A more general reading of First World War texts reveals that even if the psychological response to the war experience was not defined as individuals but as shell shock, related definitions such as nervous stability and neurasthenia were certainly recognized in wartime culture, especially at the front, with neurasthenia sometimes being used interchangeably with shell shock to define combat-induced breakdown. Although, of course, it's been argued that the enlisted soldier had shell shock and the officer had neurasthenia. To understand the meanings carried by these terms, we need to be alert not only to their, war their use in wartime diagnoses, but also to the extent to which alternative or euphemistic terms were employed to avoid the stigma of naming breakdown. Nervous exhaustion, for instance, was an acceptable compromise. But individuals may be unwilling to acknowledge their own nervous exhaustion. When individuals do acknowledge the psychological stress, 
strain is a particularly common term used to an effective response without directly stigmatizing it as breakdown. Medical officer George Gask's account, which combines his wartime journal entries with later commentary, acknowledges the weight of the strain medical officers were under, both in terms of their surgical work and the task of administration that made them directly responsible for the treatment of thousands of soldiers in unimaginably difficult conditions. Recounting the Battle of the Somme, Gask implies that complete collapse of the unit was at times held precariously at bay by the efforts of constantly exhausted staff. My memory of what happened on those first six days of July is very vague. In a letter of the 7th, July 7th, I find it stated, my mind seems very blank about it, and perhaps it is best so. It was day, day and night work with brief intervals for food and sleep. There was no need to urge people to work. Medical officers and men, they had to be watched to see that they did not overwork and become useless. It is thought we've had about 2,000 cases through a hospital on the 1st of July. My clearest recollection is a sort of nightmare of going into the crowded tents at night, trying to pick out the worst wounded by the light of an electric torch. Poor McPherson, the CO, was like a lost soul, wandering up and down the camp. He was not a good administrator, and he nearly cracked under the strain, and he would not go to bed and rest. I believe the hospital must have broken down if it had not been for the wonderful way in which every man, medical officer, and sister worked like Trojans. While Gask asserts that his memories are vague, the evocation of vast numbers of wounded and the unrelenting work communicate the intensity of the experience. His clearest recollection is, by his own, his own admission, not clear, but rather a nightmare of searching the crowded tents by the light of an electric torch for the most badly injured cases. It invites connections with both the more literary evocations of Barbosa's Le Feu and the underworld of Owen's strange meeting, as well as a historical comparison with an earlier wartime hospital, Scutari, and the most famous figure, perhaps, in medical wartime history, um, Florence Nightingale, her kerosene lamp replaced by its modern electric version, though Gask's narrative is one of chaos rather than imposed order. Although blank in Gask's memory, um, the blank might be interpreted by a 21st century reader as indicative of traumatic witnessing, his perhaps it is best so reads as a welcome forgetting. Given that he is writing this looking back, he implies that the inability to remember contributes to resilience rather than indicating the gap in memory characteristic of trauma as defined by Kathy Carruth and others. Instead, it brings us closer, closer to Nigel Hunt's hypothesis that avoidance can be a very successful long-term coping strategy. In addition, Glask's emphasis on the medical personnel's ability to sustain work under these conditions is an affirmative to set against McPherson's breakdown. Where the physical needs of the wounded supersede the emotional needs of their carers, resilience is crucially important. The tension between breakdown and resilience is a constant feature of medical personnel's writings. The strain under which poor McPherson nearly cracked is also a feature of Julia Stimson's nurses. She writes, our hospital was very full and we've had very many bad cases. 
my nurses are beginning to show the effect of the emotional strain. Their nerves are a bit on edge, and I find that when they lose a few days' time off duty, they ha as they have been doing, they are not standing the strain and loss as well as they did the last time they were so busy. I have had about a dozen of them weeping. The continuous rainy damp weather, the accumulating emotional strain, and the real hard work are having an effect on them that is bothering me. There is a convalescent hospital for nurses at E, to which I can send one or two at a time for a short rest. Strain is not the only term that repeatedly marks Simpson's prose. Weeping is a consistent feature. Of herself, she admits, naturally I cannot do any weeping as I have to be wept upon, but there are times when it, be, when it would be such a comfort to be braced myself. Thus she reveals the tension between her position of responsibility that demands steadfastness and control and her own potential breakdown and need for moral support. She says, I would have given a good deal myself to have had someone like mother to weep on. The phrase, there are times, simultaneously hides and reveals her own strain, even as her overall narrative focuses on the nurses in her charge. For doctors and nurses, reliving the strain, relieving the strain and stress was crucial if they were to sustain their work over the longer term. Looking back on his experiences again after the war, George Gask draws attention to the need for a specific strategy to maintain his emotional equilibrium, employing a kind of mind over matter approach in response to the strain. Again, that word repeated in his narrative. We are now beginning to get tired and feel the strain of the summer's work. Yet the hammering at Passchendaele Ridges still went on, and we were to have another pretty hard work, hard two months' work before things eased. The strain showed clearly in the rising sick returns of the unit, and we had many Ill illnesses, both among officers, nurses, and men. One had to use one's brain to keep well, to interest oneself in some way or another. To me, literature was a great resource, and I was very thankful to my wife that my, thankful my wife kept me well supplied, again hinting at that great movement of post back and forth from the home and the front. In addition, in addition to using one's brave t brain to keep well, Gask advocated physical exercise as another coping mechanism. Even during the hard fighting, I always tried to get about a 20 minutes walk or half an hour's walk after breakfast before keeping fit, he said. In representing um, exercise in reading literature as a means of maintaining control and seeing these tactics as his responsibility, Gask upholds the contemporary ideology of mind-body fitness as appropriate to his role as a doctor. In reflecting on these after the fact, he implies that they were important in preventing the strain from becoming overwhelming. His emphasis is on the need for endurance, since without it, the medical system of care would have collapsed. Crucially, the stoic ability to withstand the strain kept the hospital running. Rest could be a key to heading off complete breakdown, as Alice Essington Nelson's account um, of, of nursing at Lady Gifford's rest home for nurses near Boulogne demonstrates. They, they sleep sometimes for nearly 24 hours. Some of them come just dead tired, and others have small septic wounds, and others again have had their nerves shattered. One of those um, latter, when she came, just cried if you spoke to her. But when we nursed her up, and in three weeks, she was as fit as ever. She told me what had finished her was the night after Neuve Chapelle, 
when 45 terrible cases had come into her bit of ward and 15 had died before morning. Her weary body and tired nerves then gave way. However, she is back at her post now, and her matron told me she was one of her best nurses. These shattered nerves suggest uh, what would be now diagnosed as acute stress reaction, a normal and immediate response to physical and mental exhaustion and traumatic witnessing. It is often manifest in persistent, unbidden, repetitious images where the memory of what has been, um, what has been witnessed, assails the subject not long after the event, as Vera Britton described. But in the immediate term, um, male ambulance driver Leslie Buswell explicitly describes how sometimes when I get into my bed or I'm trying to get a few hours sleep, the horrors of blood, broken arms, mutilated trunks, and ripped open faces, etc., haunt me. Yet most writers eschew such descriptions, preferring to indicate their presence without actually naming them. In moving between his immediate experience recorded in his diary and his later commentary, Gass brings together the psychological burden that involved both the confrontation with the daily horror and its later recollection. He recalls how in his therapeutic walking, a ridge parallel to the Ankh was to me a via sacra, along which I tried to brace myself to bear the burden of another day. The remembrance of that path and the railway, railway line near Poparang, where I used to exercise in 1917, is burnt deep into my mind. Um, and this is very much recognized in Simon's paper, quoting Edmund London in 37, that you know the via sacra was very much in, in common parlance. Gask's emphasis on the need to brace himself, the same term used by Stimson, suggests, as her writing does, the fine line between resilience and breakdown and the consciousness of the need to exert one's will to avoid it. The, the extent to which the walks he recalls long after the fact are embedded with the memory of his experience so that they still remain a via sacra makes them bear a painful but unspoken, to, uh, but unspoken narrative in contrast with the convenient psychological shudder that prevents him remembering fully the earlier scene. Clearly, the Via Sacra not only stands in his mind for what he does not describe, but suggests, but the physical image of bracing for the burden carries the weight he intended. Moreover, it has branded him indelibly, burnt deep into my mind. Similarly, the indelible nature of the small details that made up this accumulation of traumatic seeing is recounted by Gass' medical colleague, Jeffrey Keynes, as he explained in his memoir years later, one particular incident where he witnesses the horrific destruction of a direct shell burst and attempts to treat the shattered individuals. He explained that the pattern of war is shaped in the individual mind by such small individual experiences <coughs> I can see these things clearly today, these things as clearly today as if they had just happened. In neither case, however, do we have an indication of the traumatic repression of experience. Rather, as Keynes indicates, the memory serves its purpose all too well. In the immediacy of the event, however, some individual's writing indicates how silence can help contain such images. Not writing about them in detail is a refusal to admit um, Admit them to memory. For Nurse K. Lord, a kind of willed avoidance is necessary if she is to do her job. In the immediate context of treating wounded on an ambulance train, her response to the experience is unrecorded, an absence, 
Couldn't write last night. The only thing was to try and forget it all. It has been an absolute hell of a journey. There is no other word for it. Likewise, in an unpublished diary of nursing on a hospital ship taking the wounded from Gallipoli, Miss M. Brown breaks off a daily entry with, the sight, the sight one sees are too terrible to write about. And again, anchored off the Anzac Cove, she records of a single day in August, we dress nearly one, we dress nearly a thousand. The whole thing is too ghastly to write about. While the act of writing may at times be therapeutic, it also involves reliving an experience that in the interest of practical professionalism is best left unsaid, since reliving through writing stands in the way of the suppression necessary to do the job. Being part of the same danger as the combatants, though even more vulnerable as they pause to treat the wounded rather than taking cover, runs through many medical officers' accounts. Treating and evacuated the wounded at Gallipoli, um, medical officer Norman Tattersall records in his diary entry of um, the 9th of August, 1915, have had another 24 hours of hell, cleared about 800 wounded from the pier since last night, but cannot cope with the ever-increasing stream. Have now worked 62 hours without a break and only water and biscuits. No sleep. I'm getting tired. The stretcher barriers are magnificent. The wounded have to be carried about two miles in the blazing heat over rough ground. And under the direct and indirect fire all the way. One stretcher bearer was helping me to get a stretcher onto a boat when they got him in the neck. He died in about five minutes. Three others have been wounded on the pier today. I wonder if they will get me. It is pure luck. Notably, Tattersall passes over his own endurance to focus on the heroism of the stretcher bearers. As nurses downplay their own exhaustion in the face of the suffering of the patients they treat, so here it seems that Tattersall's switching off of the focus from himself to the stretcher bearer is both the way of downplaying his own obvious heroism and perhaps a way of surviving emotionally. Insofar as the stretcher bearers are in the worse circumstances than he is, Turning his gaze away from himself and onto them, he can avoid sinking into the emotional despair that is suggested by the opening lines of the entry. Removing the focus from his own hardship is thus, one might suggest, a strategy for resilience. Similarly, his claim that being wounded or killed is pure luck shows him adopting a combatant fatalism that may offer a means of coping with the stress of the environment. Concentration on the work can thus distract from the fear that might otherwise be a response to the shelling. The demands of work itself can create a kind of dissociation that protects from its emotional impact. Olive Dent records the contrast between her emotional response and acuteness, she says, of mental suffering hitherto unparalleled in life, and it's split from her external self, which is one strange, curious self, busily concerned with sterilizer and instruments, dishes and lotions. This expression of dissociation is more fully explored by Mary Borden in The Forbidden Zone of 1929, which includes fragments written at the front and stories composed after the war. In the story Blind, Borden is able to explore such experience, reflecting back after the fact, employing a strategy where she moves from the objective to the subjective representation of her experience. 
The detached professional focus on the men in her care acts as a shield, it seems, that protect her psyche from comprehending what she is actually doing and the emotional stress that it causes her. This distancing mechanism removes her from herself so that she is no longer a feeling subject, but emotionally numbed and objectified to the point where she watches herself from the outside. I think that a woman, myself, must have been in a trance. Her feet are lumps of fire, her face is clammy, her apron is splashed with blood. But she moves ceaselessly about with bright burning eyes and handles the dreadful wreckage as if in a dream. She does not seem to notice the wounds or the blood. So long as this dissociation allows her to stand outside herself and become the object, nurse, she can perform as a nurse. But an abrupt move back into her subjective self precipitates a breakdown, leaving her incapable of performing her duties. Psychological survival and the ability to behave professionally, she implies, is only possible in this state of detachment where she can stand outside herself. When an incident forces the humanity of the wounded on her, and she can no longer view them as only bodies to be treated, her trance, the protective, objective distance, is shattered along with her psyche. I was awake now, and I seemed to be breaking to pieces. Borden's exploration of this personal experience points to an important aspect of reading these accounts that alerts us to the tension between feeling and its incompatibility with doing the job. When the proximity of breakdown threatens the nurse's ability to carry out her work, then the only option is avoidance. Resilience, particularly and as in manifest through the individual self, individual sense of satisfaction in aiding the wounded and sick, is thus also a key theme of these accounts. The concept of resilience is, an important, is as important as breakdown to this discussion. The two, I would argue, are interdependent, especially it must as it must be understood as more than a manifestation of the stiff upper lip, while at the same time we need to be alert to the cultural constructions of appropriate response to war conditions that, if we as, as we have seen, applauded stoic endurance and stigmatized breakdown. Keeping in mind the relationship between public discourses and the individual's private representation of his or her own experience, it is important that we recognize the extent to which both narratives of, resili of resilience and breakdown are constructed within cultural contexts that give or withdraw permission to certain representations of that experience. Thus, for example, published collections of nurses' letters home may have been written with the express purpose of eliciting support for the Red Cross or trying to maintain morale and support for the cause more generally. Moreover, they were subject to censorship. As Sophie Horner writes to a friend, I wish I was allowed to write all I see and hear. Though most medical memoirs are surprisingly graphic and frank in their descriptions of the wounded. So there's this issue of how much was censored and why it was censored, as was discussed yesterday in John's um, lecture. Mademoiselle Miss, in a memoir of 1916, um, that was published in order to elicit supplies and other financial support from the Americans, she tells her family, I think you would sicken with fright if you could see the operations that a poor nurse is called upon to perform, the putting in of drains, the washing of wounds so huge and ghastly as to make one marvel at the endurance that is the man's, the digging about for bits of shrapnel. Maud Mortimer, 
is even more unsparing in her memoir, A Green Tent in Flanders, published in 1917. In straightforward, unembellished prose, she describes a man who has had a bad time with his knee. It seemed nothing at first, but after two operations, the articulation of the knee had to be opened. With forceps, I hold the desolate flap while the pus is cleaned away and disinfectants poured into the wound. Another man um, has a case. Is that Mark? It's not Mark. Oh, sorry. Um, it's just not there. There she is. Okay. Another man has a case of gas gangrene, and the doctors pass the fatal verdict. Faut découper la jambe. He refuses at first, then consents. It is his only threat of a chance. Depressi amputates the leg at the hip joint, a staggering operation. The beauty of the mutilated body lying on the table and the severed leg carried away to be dissected is almost intolerable. What is noteworthy, however, is that there is a rhetorical impulse to impose an affirmative narrative of stoicism on the trauma story, particularly one which reassures both writer and reader that the horrific circumstances being witnessed are politically and morally necessary. And as John alerted us to um, yesterday, that the graphic descriptions of suffering were there to give, as he says, a true measure of the sacrifice. Leslie Buswell's 1917 memoir characteristically attests to the interdependence of potential breakdown with resilience. It is good to be here in the presence of high courage and to have learned a little in our youth of the values of life and death. Likewise, Elizabeth Walker Black in Hospital Heroes of 1919, written before the end of the war, affirms that the blessés make it all worthwhile and chase away the kafar that is that slough of despond when you feel you don't like being out, you don't like to be out there at all and yet would hate not to be there. Luxuries seem contemptible when men are dying. There is regeneration in knowing that you can meet the worst and survive. While at one point she questions the whole effort, it all seems so futile, all this struggling and misery in order that one army of frozen men could take away some snowy, uncomfortable holes in the ground away from another army equally wretched, dogged endurance offers a form of affirmation at the same time. Um, no, it is hard, but you somehow struggle Stumble along, no, that's not the right one. It is hard, but you somehow stumble along, fed up, but sticking it. Living on the edge of eternity this way raises one's working efficiency to a higher rate. You must stay and work and comfort and cheer and help all you can until the light comes. Sorry, that's a quote from Dent. I'm going to stick to that. <laughs> Um, but it's equally uh, um, important to this idea of I would stagger back at the end of my 24 hours to report with an apron and often a face spattered with blood and mud and yet a spirit radiant and unweary with the thrill of service. Post-war publications, especially um, works that appeared in the late 1920s and early 1930s on the other hand, were, were written or published in the case of letters or diaries written during the war in response to and fed a post-war mood of reassessment and disillusionment. In the first instance, therefore, um, women may focus on the self-sacrificing nature of the men they nurse and on their own contribution to the war effort, hence constructing a narrative of resilience as a necessary response. 
In the second instance, writers found a readership for the anger and hopelessness recorded in private wartime diaries, or reflecting back on their experiences now had permission to perceive it in terms of a massive waste of lives, and thus can construct their memories accordingly. Lack of official censorship post-war may also have made it easier for writers to include comments that could not have been published during the war, especially evidence of breakdown that, as we considered yesterday, perhaps blame the military machine for that breakdown. So to conclude, to understand how trauma is represented in these works, however unwillingly or obliquely, as well as the attendant resilience, we therefore need to be sensitive to the diversity of responses and contexts that include both the wartime need for a stoic idealism and the profound disillusionment of its aftermath. Examining the way these individuals express an experience that would by any measure be defined as traumatic allows us to uncover the emotional impact of war on these medical men and women. Far from being silenced by trauma, they offer a range of narratives through which they confront it. At the same time, it is only in paying close attention to the way that experience is articulated, particularly in the unwillingness to place themselves at the center of their narratives and to claim their pain, that we can dis disembed both the emotional toll of their work and their extraordinary resilience from these texts. The complexities, ambiguities, and contradictions in these writings at once affirm the reality of the experience as traumatic and contest the idea that such experience is inevitably dominated and silenced by that trauma.